From pitch side to print to the press box above Providence Park. It's Jamie Goldberg from the Oregonian and Richard Farley from the Portland Timbers and Thorns. This is Soccer Made in Portland. On the scene, all the time. Welcome everyone to Soccer Made in Portland. Uh, we have a big show. We're going to talk Timbers, Thorns, and we're going to talk a little bit U.S. Women's National Team. We have uh, Caitlin Murray on later. Uh, she has a new book on the U.S. Women's National Team. Uh, she'll help us preview the World Cup coming up. But uh, Richard, first, yeah. should we talk about Vancouver? <laughs> we should talk about <laughs> Vancouver. We should talk about uh, kind of a very nuanced, I don't want to say a nuanced performance because the game was pretty straightforward, but a nuanced way to look at the one nothing loss yeah. on Friday at BC Place. Um <laughs> First, let's get to predictions. Jamie. Yeah. Should we talk about how wrong I was? We, let's not talk about it for long. <laughs> uh, Jamie, 3-1 to one win. You saw four goals coming in this game. Yeah. Yeah, I guess that's not so bad if you saw the Timbers kind of continuing what they've been doing yeah. lately. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I feel like there's some games I, I get sort of on the money, and then there's some that I just it, I'm not even close. Yeah. This is one of those. Yeah. Um, you, on the other hand, I, I think you sort of predicted sort of what was going to happen. Uh, one team will be shut out is what you said. Yeah. You said one team was going to score first and that, that team would probably win. Yeah, first first goal wins in my mind. So that's kind yeah. of what happened, although the Timbers came very, very close a number of times, particularly during about a 10-minute stretch in the second half of making it not first-team wins. wins. And I think we can get into that. You know, talking about the one to nothing match, you were actually there in British Columbia. The Timbers outshot Vancouver 27-2. to It's a 12, new... 27-12. But... <laughs> yes, thank you. Thank you. Correcting mistakes is a good thing. We're just talking off the top of our head here. It was a new team record for shots in a road yeah. game. Uh, I guess a little bit deceiving because we already knew Vancouver was a team that liked to sit back a little bit. They got a 10th-minute goal from Freddie Montero, so they had 80 minutes to sit back. But, uh, Jamie, one of the underlying questions here is posed by a listener, Kaz. Is it fine to feel good about the Vancouver game besides the result? I think the team performed really well. What do you think? Yeah, my my feeling is yes. Uh, I, I think there, there should be some disappointment coming out of this game and that's because I think it's going to be a lot harder now for the Timber to sort of uh, hit that 12-point mark by the time they come home. I, I, I think that this was probably the game when you're when you're looking at it going to Houston, uh, with tough place to play, good team, uh, going to Philadelphia, again, team that's playing very well. The Timbers can get points there, but they're going to be tougher. This, this was sort of the one of the three games left that looked like Timbers could potentially get the win here. So I think there's some disappointment to be felt from that. But I think especially coming off this five-game losing streak they had early this season where there was times where you, you looked at the games and you wondered, Do the Timbers don't know what they're doing. How in the world are they going to put this together? You don't have that feeling coming out of this game. The Timbers played well. I, I think they continued on the path that they've been on the last few games, and that's a good sign. Uh, it, it's not always going to go their way, especially on the road. But the, you can't really look at this. Obviously, you know, you can look at it in sections. The first 20 minutes might not have been good enough, but you can't look at this game and say they played poorly. Absolutely not. I thought some of the passing sequences we saw from the Timbers were clearly some of the best possession play we've seen this year. And I thought that was because they had to respond to Vancouver. We saw what Doniel Henry did. Doniel Henry's been one of the best central defenders in this league so far this year. Uh, we saw what Maxine Crepo did in goal. I thought we saw three pretty good midfield performances from the Whitecaps, too. And I thought it was just a game where we have to sit back and go, you know, sometimes because soccer is such a low scoring sport, these things happen. 
And it makes preventing goals like that first one even more important. It makes doing the little extra things to make sure you don't get in that position all the more important. But to speak to Kaz's question, is it finally to feel good about the Vancouver game besides the final result? Yes, absolutely. For the 10th game of the season, when you look at it in terms of the team's trajectory and where they want to go, I think you can go even farther and say they took some step forwards, steps forward in this game because of that possession game. I mean, you think about the sequence that led to that Diego Valeri chance from about 10 yards out where he put it right into Maxime Crepeau. But the passing that led to that opportunity was crisp. It was, uh, you can see the patterns that they had been working on. You can see the team knew where their teammates were going to be. Compare that to the Dallas game even, which Giovanni Savarese cites as the beginning of this team's run of playing well. I think my write-up on the site after that game was the team's touches have to get a lot cleaner than this. They're slowing each other down in play. And I thought in Vancouver that wasn't the case. Some of that I think is the turf. I mean, the turf just gives you a reliable role every time. Even early in the moments in the game on Friday, we saw the teams possessing for like 60, 75 seconds at a time. And it's because you can move the ball so quickly. Other teams aren't going to come out and chase you when you can move the ball around them as quickly as you can at BC Place. Regardless, Jamie, I want to know what you think. In possession, I thought the Timbers looked as impressive in possession play as they have had all season. Yeah, I I would agree with that. I I think obviously, and you touched on it a little earlier, it there are elements that contributed to the Timbers being able to have possession. I mean, you mentioned the turf, but also just the way the Whitecaps played. That contributed to the Timbers being on the ball more, um, with the Whitecaps basically deciding to bunker um, bunker in after uh, scoring, not conceding, scoring that first goal. Um, it, it enabled the Timbers to have more possession and enabled the Timbers to be on the ball more and, and take more shots. Uh, but... Yeah, those are all positives. And I, I think when you are looking at the season, yeah, I, I think in terms of possession, and that's been a major issue for the Timbers, particularly we talked so much earlier in the season about the turnovers in the midfield. Um, this was, I, I think, the best performance we've seen in that area. Now, Jamie, sometimes we hear people talk about performances or games as if it's a game of two halves and one half is for one team, one half is for another one. To, to me, I think you have some numbers written down here for us. This is a game of two parts. Yeah. It was the part before the goal where you have here Vancouver. Um, Vancouver had six of their shots during that time leading up to the goal. During that time, I was kind of thinking to myself, you know, this, this is a typical road game. The Timbers are going to have to ride this out. They don't look as good as Vancouver right now. And then there's the part after that where Vancouver, to me, didn't look as good as the Timbers, nor did they need to. What went wrong in that first before the Montero goal period? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think it's longer than just that period. I mean, the Whitecaps score in the ninth minute. I, the six shots come in the twenty in the first twenty minutes, and, and I think Tuiloma, um, that was very close to being an own goal when he tries to head the ball away, and Steve Clark has to make a save. That comes after the Whitecaps have already scored a goal. So I think it was a little bit longer than nine minutes, but yeah. it, but it, by the twentieth minute, maybe even a little bit before, the momentum had clearly shifted. Um, I think the Timbers, and this happens to road teams, took a little while to sort of settle into the game. I, I don't know if that was settling into the turf and how quickly Vancouver can move the ball or, or something like that or just sort of being on the road, getting their feet under them, um, and that can hurt you. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, in, in this case, it, it cost them the game. Uh, they clearly were ready to play by the 20th minute, but they, they weren't necessarily ready to play by minute one or ready to – uh, adjust to what Vancouver was going to give them. Um, it, it took them a little bit of time to adjust to Vancouver, adjust to the field, just being out there uh, for whatever reason. Um, and I, I think that is harder on the road. Uh, but in, in those 20 minutes, Vancouver found the goal and, and had opportunities. And, and 
it happens um, on road games, but but it hurt them. Yeah, they're particularly on the counterattack yeah. after going up a goal. There were a couple of clear chances. I think there was one where Jorge Morera got back to defend the far post when it was you know in transition. Vancouver created an opportunity. A couple times, Steve Clark had to come up pretty big. So as much as we're saying that the Timbers could have scored a couple goals in the second half, and we, we all know the the close call on the Lucas Milano non-chance, Diego Valeri. There was a pass intercepted when Jeremy Obobese seemed open in front of goal. I think a couple of other times things like that happened. There were chances for Vancouver to go into yeah. halftime up multiple goals. I, I think overall... The game comes down to this question, Jamie. How much, how much do you think the Whitecaps deserve credit for that performance? Because I came away from the game Friday thinking the Whitecaps just played well and the Timbers played well and the Whitecaps deserve that three points. Yeah, I, I think that Vancouver had a plan. Um, I, I think it's a plan you don't always see from a home team. Uh, a lot of home teams, after scoring, aren't going to bunker. They're going to try to get forward, get another goal. But... Vancouver controlled possession and dominated the game early, got that goal, and, and then was happy to sort of sit back, try to hit the Timbers on the counterattack, try to get a second goal out of it. But uh, they were confident that their defense could keep the Timbers off the board in, in sort of using that, uh, um, going that way that they were going to bunker. So, yeah, it was a good performance from the Whitecaps. It wasn't a pretty game of soccer it wasn't the kind of uh, exciting fun game of soccer to watch I, I don't think if you're trying to introduce someone to the game this is the game you'd want to show them or anything like that but which like, game would you want to show them which I mean no I, I say that facetiously but I'm trying to think back to the Timbers previous nine games this year the LAFC game I think was fun until I mean for Timbers fans until the last what 30 minutes or so yeah. but you know, the first hour of that game was really but fun I think to watch. I would send them to Champions League right now. <laughs> mm. Yes, right. That's, that's true. Although that's a pretty high bar. Well, yeah, it is. But there, there has been some uh, extra exciting games happening. Yeah, that's a little <laughs> bit too much. Yeah. If you don't have heart problems, I recommend Champions League for you. Uh, or if you don't have friends that support Spurs or Liverpool who are going to scream directly into yeah. your ears, that, that's another reason to avoid Champions League lately. Uh, let's talk about the goal, Jamie, because just... As with anything with the Timbers defense, because there have been questions about the Timbers defending not only this year, but last year, particularly in light of some of the personnel changes they've had over the last year or so. The goal that happened, Vancouver plays a direct ball targeting Freddie Montero. Jorge Morera steps in front of it. The ball falls to Russell Tybert, who then plays it back to Montero into the space that Morera would otherwise be defending. Uh, Montero turns towards goal, hits it high into goal past Steve Clark, one to nothing. Should we be worried at all about that goal? Yeah, it, it, it's a tough play. I, I mean, I, I think that they had too many. The Timbers had three players essentially, um, you know, moving towards the ball on that play. And I think all looking on tape, they're going to say, yeah, we should have done something differently. We couldn't we can't leave Montero completely unmarked. But I, I think in, in terms of that pass and trying to intercept it, I think it's understandable how it happened. I, I think it's definitely one on film that there's going to be a discussion on that saying, yeah, you don't leave their best <laughs> forward unmarked in this situation. There was enough players to, to cover the ball. Mm -hmm. Well, there isn't really much more to talk about in this game. It's pretty much just Timbers didn't take their chances. Yeah. Vancouver pretty much did, which starts to turn us towards Houston. And then the week after that, Philadelphia. Let's talk about Houston first because it's today, as people are listening to the show, tonight, uh, 5.30 kickoff, a place where the Timbers have never won in the MLS era. And a place that has carried some bad memories lately for the Timbers. 4-1 to one loss last year. 
trip before in the playoffs the year before came back with 17 players injured i think that's the official number uh there was <laughs> there was chara there was Mavial. yeah 17 players injured uh i think we also know that uh cooking for yourself in houston is probably or before houston games probably a bad idea yeah, especially pasta yeah boiling water nothing that involves boiling water avoid that <laughs> uh, but let's talk about houston themselves first because uh one thing that i wrote about this week is just the idea that nobody considers houston a power in this league. Yeah. But as of right now, they have the second best points per game rate. They have the second best defense in the league. In the Western Conference, they have the second best goal difference. They have played six of their nine games at home. But for anybody that watched the Houston Seattle game at CenturyLink this weekend, they know that just as the Dynamo have been tough for the Timbers over the last few years, the Dynamo is tough for everybody else right now. So, Jamie, what do you expect from Houston? What do you think? is contributing to that strong record they've amassed so far this season. Yeah, I mean, you look at their roster and you look at it, especially on the attacking side, you look at a lot of those players fast, very fast players that that can uh, cause problems. They're also really young. And this team has weirdly been together for a few years. A number of these players have, especially in the attack, have contributed to Houston for a few years, but are still really young. So this is a team that I think has just been growing together to some degree. Um, making changes um, where needed. Um, but some of the key players have been growing together and, and are getting to a point where probably what they want is coming to fruition and, and is in on path where they maybe are going to get better and better um, moving forward. So I think they're a tough team. I think at home, particularly the Timbers defense, uh, they're going to be a handful for the for um, the Timbers to deal with. Um, and there's, I mean, they're 5-0-1 at home. And obviously, yeah, that's... They're lucky to have played so many home games, but uh, I don't think it's going to be easy at all for the Timbers to play there. Yeah, they're they're lucky to have played so many home <laughs> games, but guess where tomorrow's game is? It's at BBVA exactly. Cup Stadium. So the fact that they're better at home than on the road is kind of irrelevant. You have to yeah. deal with that better <laughs> team. And I think people that remember the home game in particular last year and how that didn't could have gone better for the Timbers, just the athleticism of players like Mauro Minotas and Albert, Albert Elis, being able to take advantage of any error that your defense is going to make in possession and quickly turn that into opportunities. Uh, Romel Kyoto also contributed that the last few years. He hasn't been starting lately. Memo Rodriguez has been starting on the left wing. They've got Tomas Martinez at the top of midfield providing a connective force that I think maybe they've lacked in years past. Because ever since ever since their new coach, Wilmer Cabrero, got there, they've had a, a kind of a counterattacking and forced turnovers high mentality, but I think they can play with a little bit more possession now, and I just think this is a good team. I mean, this yeah. is a team that won Open Cup last year, and after winning Open Cup, they kind of clicked into neutral, but they still finished with an even goal difference, despite over the last part of the year not really caring that much about anything. And so I think, like you said, when you look at this team and you look at the trouble they've given other teams, it's no question that this team is going to give the Timbers trouble. So I guess... That leads to what the Timbers can do against Houston. Unfortunately, we have to circle back to a typical question. Diego Chara picked up a yellow card on Friday. He's going to be suspended for this game. I kind of think it was almost a good thing because this might have been a game where you question with the short rest and the travel. Maybe you rotate some veterans for this one. Maybe you would have rotated Chara. I doubt that would have happened, to be honest with you. Yeah, I don't. Um, But... At least, I think if you were going to pick a game coming up to have Chiraz serve his suspension, I probably would have picked this one. Yeah, but they have a week and a half between this one and their next game. I, I, Which is probably why I wouldn't have wanted him to pick it up in Houston and miss the Philadelphia game. 
Yeah, he would I be mean, I wouldn't have wanted to pick pick it up ever, but that's well, you, you have no choices there. Allow me to tell you something about <laughs> David Chara. The guy isn't afraid to have his name written down a little book. Yeah. So, I, I mean, if you're looking at the coming games, you've got Houston, Philadelphia, and then you return home. Yeah. I, like you said, you'd never want him to serve a suspension, but if you had to choose, and you knew based on the odds in the next coming games, he's probably going to pick up a yellow card. I guess I would rather him get it out of the way for Vancouver, be able to take two weeks worth of rest, not have to do this short trip, go back to Houston where he doesn't have greatest memories of Houston either <laughs> of late. But it gets us back to the enduring question. How? After 23 games without a victory, without Diego Tron in the lineup, can the Timbers break that streak? I, Big pause. I, I just don't know that they can. Um, I, I think it's going to be really tough. I mean, you just talked about the, the attackers and, uh, that the Houston has and, and how they'll punish you when you make mistakes. Not having Chara in the lineup is going to be, a, I think, a problem um, for the Timbers. And I, I think I, I think the Timbers, it made a lot of sense to trade Davi Guzman, but it does sort of open up some questions for this game now when Chara's not in the lineup. Well, what's the what's plan, uh, plan B? Mm-hmm. Um, Andres Flores has already been starting. Uh, so if you're going to keep the same formation, then you have to just ha- sort of try to do a like-for-like replacement with Chara. I'm not really sure that they have a great option for that. Do you change the formation? Do you, do you drop Blanco back uh, and maybe add, put in a different attacker? Um, do you move Tui Loma up to central midfield? I, I think that's an option. Um, defensively, I, I think that would make a lot of sense, but I, I don't know that you want to mess up that center back pairing that's been working. Mm. Maybe you put Andy Polo in. Uh, but again, that's a little bit more uh, offensive when you're going to be dealing with um, a game where you really need to put in a solid defensive performance. Um, I, I think there's a lot of questions about how the Timbers are going to approach this. They, they've been sticking with the same lineup and same formation, but without Chara, they're going to have to make a choice. They're either switch the formation or, or make a, a change that's going to make them have a different, a pretty different look, I think. I would just stick Renzo Zambrano in there. Well, I mean... that. That might be the answer, but since we haven't seen him yet at all, mm-hmm. it's hard to come in from the outside. But yeah, I mean, that would be the most like-for-like like if you just want sort of a defensive mind to player in there. I mean, nothing's a like-for-like. Like. I shouldn't I mean, even use those words with Chara. Yeah, I guess, you know, we haven't seen Zambrano at the T, at this level. I mean, we've seen him in open cut play. I don't think of Renzo Zambrano as a defensive-minded player. He's really good on the ball, really good in possession. He plays the uh, for T2. He's over the last few years, been the deepest lying midfielder. But even last year, when he was paired with Andre Lewis in the double pivot of the four-two-three-one, sometimes Lewis would sit and he would get forward. Um, in that way, I think it's almost been more difficult for him to find a role with the Timbers because he's not just a tr- traditional sit, ball-winning midfielder, when at times last year the Timbers could have used that maybe, and they had to put Lawrence Olam in that role. Uh, but I think part of trading Davi Guzman is maybe Renzo Zambrano is just better than David Guzman at this point. And in the past, you give David Guzman the benefit of the doubt because he's on the bigger contract, he's the more established player. You don't just jump somebody above him for no reason. Well, he, David Guzman isn't here anymore, but Renzo Zambrano did kind of jump above him, in a sense, essentially, yeah. making him expendable. That being said, you mentioned Andres Flores. Another option is to move Flores in, and maybe somebody like Marvin Loria starts. I mean, there are um, Marvin Loria started in Tacoma this weekend for T2. Obviously, a very well thought of player. But either way, I think we're on the cusp of seeing some of these two T2 players start to have a bigger impact. We, we saw Jeremy Obobese have one last year, uh, but really to this point, 
that's kind of been the only one that has broken through. Uh, but now we're starting to see more opportunities come up. Yeah, I mean, I would like to see that. I think that Geo's been so careful with inserting young players yeah. and not try sort of throwing them to the wolves. And that sort of feels like what this game's going to be. Yeah, I um, think so too. So that's one of the reasons why I guess I shied away from saying Zimbrano. But yeah. in terms of just positionally getting what you need and trying and not making too many changes to your formation, um, I, I think that does make a lot of sense. Yeah, I mean, part of me wonders if they go to the five three two again, move yeah. Seba back in because and then have Flores and Paredes in the middle because that helps compensate for not having Chara to make a pure two-man yeah. midfield work. And it allows you also to kind of play like you maybe would on the road against a strong opponent. At the same time, with only, what, four days rest, two of those days devoted to, to travel. I don't know. You have to start making some choices. Did, does Diego Valeri, do you plan for him to go the full 90 minutes? Yes or no? Larry Smabiala, would you have with Diego Chara? Sebastian Blanco, you... He usually isn't somebody that rotates, but he's also somebody that picked up a small knee injury uh, against LAFC when he was... Was it LAFC that he tried that bicycle kick and hyperextended his knee? I can't remember. But either way, there are some there are some rotation elements here. Maybe somebody like Jorge Morea, you even give, give a break because he's had to basically be playing hard ever since he got here. So it'll be very, very interesting. What, what would you do? Would you just roll with the same... Like with your A team here or would you rotate? I, I I wouldn't I, I if I was the Timbers I don't think I'd rotate uh, significantly I, I think I would uh, try to make a change for Chara but otherwise basically keep the same lineup and the biggest reason I I feel that way is despite it being short rest at least it's Friday Wednesday not Saturday Wednesday or Sunday yeah absolutely Wednesday and they're not playing again on Saturday so they can basically I think push the players and then say all right take the rest of the week off we'll see you Monday or, or something like that. Now, Jamie, I already asked this question that one of our listeners, Carl, said. I kind of said I'd probably go to a 5-3-2. Carl says, what sorts of different no-chara options will we see to avoid a repeat of Cincinnati against a much tougher opponent? So for people who don't know, Diego Chara was suspended with a red card that he had picked up against LAFC. In that game in Cincinnati, the Timbers obviously did not play well, and they started Christian Paredes and Bill Tuiloma at the base of the midfield in a 4-2-3-1. So what would you do, Jamie Goldberg, if you had to plan for this situation? Yeah, I mean, I don't... I think they're either going to stick with the formation-wise, either the what they've been doing, um, more of the 4-2, or more of the 5-3-2, as you mentioned, Mm -hmm. um, go a little bit more defensive. Uh, So if they stick with the same formation, that's where I have a lot of questions as to what they're going to do. I just don't see them moving to Iloma up. I mean, mean, that is a possibility, but I don't see that... um, them trying to mess with that center back pairing. Um, if they stick with that, I think maybe Polo comes in and you just drop Andres Flores um, a little deeper. Yeah. I, I think that's probably the simplest option. I mean, I mentioned Marvin Loria and I didn't mention Andy Polo. Yeah. What an idiot am I? <laughs> Andy Polo's actually been getting minutes. Yeah. See, this is where my bias comes in because I devote this time to watching T2 and talking to these guys at T2 that I forget the most obvious yeah. ones. Like, you have to stop me when I'm doing something like that. <laughs> like, just reach across the table and, like, flick me in my forehead or something like that. Like, Richard, there's a very obvious answer. Or even somebody like Dyer on Espria. Like, no, no listener to the show wants to hear us bring up Dyer on Espria again because he's a known commodity. But when you just need somebody to fill in for one game... And as people who've seen him play at USL, like he's been more productive at USL than these other people we talk about. I mean, you can't say that he should be above Andy Polo, but if I'm bringing up USL options, 
Well, I mean, Dyron Espria's goal scoring rate at USL is kind of gross, actually. It's like, oh man, USL, you should you should really not be letting him do this. I think he has like what two goals in three games this year, and they had like two goals in two games last year. Sample size and everything, but don't let me do that. <laughs> Just flick me in my head if I do that. Uh, let's get to the next question um, from Andrew. Does the yellow card accumulation for Chara make it easier to insert Fernandez into the lineup or harder? I don't think it makes a difference because, and I think the biggest thing is I don't think Fernandez is going to be in the lineup. Why are you stealing my answer? <laughs> is it because it's because I went you first? Oh, jeez, I'm going to start asking these questions to myself then. <laughs> um, I don't. I, I just. I don't think he's going to be in the lineup. Um, I think it's given that he's been training. He, he his first full training was last Wednesday, so uh, one week before this game, and the Timbers have obviously played a game in between that have off yeah. days. He hasn't even had a full week of training with this team. I, I think it makes a lot of sense to insert him at at, at a somewhat slower pace. I, I mean, he's going to get in the lineup quickly, but I would expect to see him come off the bench in this game, then maybe start Philadelphia um, once he's had another week and a half with the team. So I don't, I don't think it really matters. I think obviously it, it may have mattered if there was a formation change and trying to figure out how to insert him in. Um, but, but I highly doubt we'll see him in the starting lineup. Yeah, I'm not going to repeat what you said. I just think everything you said is exactly what I would infer from the situation. So let's move on to the next question from Michael. How is Brian Fernandez looking in practice and fitting in with the team? If he plays Wednesday, what position do you think he will play? Do you want me to ask that to you or me? Cause well, you, you want to go first. So I don't steal yeah, your answer. Yeah. So why don't, why don't um, you take that one first? So in training, we stand on the sidelines and we talk about Brian a lot, not only because uh, Fernandez is the new person, but he's just so different than every other player stylistically. Uh, And I think in thinking back to the conversations that all of us that I had with everybody last week, I think there was a tendency to be in a little bit too much awe of him and think that those differences make him a better player. Because when he was doing things in practice that you don't see other people do, you naturally think they're better things. In thinking back on last week, they're just kind of different things. I mean, everybody's seen enough tape of Brian Fernandez at this point to know that he's nothing like Jeremy Abobasi or Diego Valeri or Andy Polo or Sebastian Blanco. So the little times that he kind of explodes behind the lines and attacks spaces that other players on the team doesn't, you tend to think, whoa, look at that. So I don't think it, it makes him better or worse. I think the key thing here is it makes him different in a way that the Timbers needed. They need somebody with that kind of explosive, athletic, fast determined threat because the players that the Timbers have right now tend to be a little bit pensive. A lot of times they tend to be thoughtful and more creative. Even Sebastian Blanco, who we associate with a level of aggression and explosiveness that the other players don't have. It's not the same when you watch Brian Fernandez. So I think that he has, I think he's been fitting in well. I think that he's been fitting in a way that makes everybody kind of go, Whoa, look at this. But at the same time, we're not providing the appropriate perspective to it. Now regarding positions, I will say that, there was a lot of talk coming before Brian Fernandez's arrival about him being a right midfielder, which makes sense because the last three months of highlights he's had and the Cox are pretty much all from right midfield. But even during that time, he was still getting starts as striker. He started at striker almost exclusively the tournament before in Mexico for Nicaxa, played a little bit on the left wing too. In Chile, he was almost always a forward. And in France, he was almost always a forward. And in training, he's been playing all these positions. So, to, to uh, Michael's question, what position do you think he will play? I have no idea. I really don't. Because you could say right midfield because he's been playing there. Right midfield has a lot more defensive responsibilities, which means your relationships with the players around you become more important. It's way easier just to throw a player in an attack and just go, hey, just go and press the hell out of the other team and run and get into spots and like see how it goes. I don't know, Jamie. What do you think? 
I, I think my guess is for this game specifically, I think he's just going to come on in the attack at sometime in the second half, and it's going to be based on which player in the attack looks like they need a break. There um, you go. So maybe it's going to be Diego Valeri coming off for Brian Fernandez, just because uh. Larry might be the, if I'm going to guess right now, might be the player that needs to come off on short rest um, a little bit earlier, and, and then they'll sort of figure out the formation from there. But that's mm-hmm. going to be sort of a late-game substitution. I think... When he gets in the starting lineup, let's say that might be Philadelphia. Um, Gio said on Sunday that he'd be eligible for the Houston game, which is why we're talking about him potentially playing there. Um, And I think that's probably a fair expectation to have. Um, But if he maybe gets in the starting lineup in Philly, I I think that's where it becomes a little bit uh, more difficult. Mm -hmm. I I think we've talked about this, but what makes the most sense is the Timbers return to the 4-2-3-1 and take Andres Flores out. Um, and they have this easy position to get their best, easy way to get their best players on the field. But I'm very wary of the four two three one. Yeah. So I don't know. Do you uh, just not like Timbers fans? <laughs> like you could have just waited until the world brought this back to them, but you're bringing it back to them. If you're saying this is for Philadelphia, you're bringing it back to them almost I two mean, weeks ahead I, of time. I think that it may. I think that it, wow. it, it makes positionally the, the simplest sense. Um, yes. It doesn't mean it's going to be what they go with. If they just feel like that formation is not going to work, they might have to do something differently. But that puts them in position where if they want to positionally, it, they either have to drop someone like Blanco into the mid, deeper into the midfield where they maybe don't want him or they need to potentially not get their best 11 guys on the field. Yeah, and the difference between the way the Timbers were playing a four-two-three-one versus a four-four-two. Depending how they re-implement a four-two-three-one, if they go that way, the differences could be subtle to the point of being like mundanely, oh my God, why are we talking about this small? Yeah. Or they could be really significant because I think the one thing we've seen from with the four-four-two is the defensive relationships are more established. Yeah. They're higher, there's a higher priority behind them. And while, yes, in theory, in a four-two-three-one, you should be defending in a four-four-two, the moments of transition from one shape to another can be very important. And those moments killed the Timbers earlier this season. So uh, while that can happen, I mean, Jamie, really brave for you to bring that up. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's go to uh, a couple of kind of random questions. We'll get to our predictions later. Let's go to a couple of random questions surrounding yeah. the team right now. Um, Tezero asks, will Christian Paredes and Jorge Moreira miss games for Copa America? Well, I guess it's too soon for us to tell, Jamie, but we can talk about other t- players that might miss time too because there's a Salvadorian international in the team and there is a Gold Cup coming up. There is a U.S. international in the team. Yeah. There are There's a Costa Rican international in the team. So overall, Jamie, I'll kind of take Tezero's question because we can't... Or is that TJ's arrow? I don't sure. know. I'm reading it. Maybe I'm reading it wrong because maybe you're a, just giving it a. <laughs> I know there's a red squiggly light under it because it's not a word, so I, it looks like an I to me. But now I'm seeing it might be a J. I think it's a J. Okay, so TJ zero, not Tisero. Wow, that was really over the top. Me doing that. T, so let's go to TJ zero's question. Implicitly, he's asking: Do the Timbers need to worry about absences? So Paredes, Moreira, Polo. Uh, L- Loria Zambrano is a Venezuelan international. Uh, Ibobasi, uh, Flores. Which of these players do you think people need to worry about not being here for two to three, maybe four weeks during the summer? I mean, you see Polo getting pretty consistent call-ups. I sure. I assume Marrera Predes has been back with that team. I, I think the Timbers are going to have to deal with some absences. Mm. I, I can't 
necessarily predict exactly which players it's going to be at this point. I mean, Abobasi may be still on the cusp with the national, the women, uh, women's actually, the U.S. national team, mm-hmm. the other U.S. national team. Jeremy Bobasi going back to France. That makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I think he's way more on the cusp given that he's really just gotten that one January camp. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I think the Timbers are probably going to have to deal with some major absences at some point. You know, we need to switch to the interview that you did with Caitlin Murray here pretty soon, but I can't drop this that soon. So, out of all these players, which would you be most concerned about the Timbers losing? If Moreira goes, then Z- Valentin switches back to the right, and they have Viafania or Bla- or uh, Blanco. Viafania. We're losing or, it. <laughs> or or Farfan on the left. Um, Flores, we kind of know what the situation is with him and Polo. Paredes, we're talking about Chara's backup, so we kind of know what that situation is like. Abobasi, there's new attacking depth with Fernandez com- coming in. Uh, Loria hasn't played at all this year, neither has Zambrano. So which of those absences do you think would be most damaging to the Timbers over that initial summer month? Yeah, I, I think that probably Paredes, um, just because I, I think that pairing with Chara and Paredes yeah. is that, I mean, you mentioned, you know, the depth being part of the reason of trading Guzman, but obviously if Paredes hasn't won that spot, that wouldn't have happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and a, whoever's coming in behind Paredes at this point is, is probably someone that's a little bit less proven, even if the Timbers feel ready, if it's someone like Zimbrano, but of course... We, the other the other thing I think that they need to worry about is if multiple players in these positions are start leaving and you're suddenly looking at number three on the depth chart. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, Jamie, I'm going to ask you two questions right now. Pick a number between zero and 24. <laughs> 15. And then pick a number between zero and 100. 15. <laughs> <laughs> wow, okay. So Nathaniel asked two questions that you just answered. How many more Chara-less games before the Timbers get a win? And you said 15. <laughs> wow. Um, that's really pessimistic. But at the same time, I mean, history shows that you might be right. And then Nathaniel also asked, how many more months before the Timbers get their first hat trick? So 15. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. I mean, it, yeah, it, it's hard to answer both of these. I, I mean, I, I think... We'll see how well Fernandez does. I mean, if he lights it up, maybe the idea of a hat trick will look not as crazy. Um, right now, the idea of anyone on the Timbers getting a hat trick, I, I think, does sort of look um, unlikely. Yeah. Uh, Valeri hasn't been lighting it up like he did in 2017 or anything like that. Maybe Blanco has an amazing game. Uh, maybe Abobasi does. But it, it, it yeah. just seems a little unlikely right now that the Timbers are going to end up with a hat trick. And... I'm still not convinced the Timbers uh, can win without Chara. Um, they're obviously going to a tough place this weekend, but maybe they'll come up at some point against a team that's uh, not quite as tough, not on the road without Chara. I mean, I think they can do it at some point. I, I just, going into this weekend, I'm not so convinced. Or okay. this week. Final question. Pick a number between zero and seven. Seven. Jamie Goldberg says the U.S. Women's National Team is going to win all seven of their games in France over the next month and a half. Oh, that's she is, not actually that bad of a prediction. <laughs> yeah, she is predicting that the United States will win their fourth World Cup and their second straight world title. Well, to talk about that, Jamie touched base with Caitlin Murray, famous author, somebody who's going to be in France for the World Cup, to talk to her about her book and the coming tournament. So here's that interview. Now I'm excited to welcome in Caitlin Murray, the author of The National Team, The Inside Story of the Women Who Changed Soccer. Caitlin, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Um, So you were the expert on everything women's soccer after spending uh, probably over a year writing this book. Uh, I'm most interested to to start is 
What motivated you to want to write this book? When you think about the U.S. women's national team, they are one of the most successful teams in sports. Certainly, as far as women's teams go, they've taken a place in the sports landscape that no other team does. So I think that there there wasn't really a book that kind of did justice to how much success this team has had and the influence it has had on the sports landscape. So I really wanted something that kind of told the team's full story on and off the field. I think people are aware of, you know, they've won three World Cups, they've won multiple gold medals, but, you know, the behind the scenes, some of the stuff that the team went through to get to where it is today, uh, a lot of that wasn't really known. So I wanted something that kind of did that justice and kind of help people understand when the team files a lawsuit in March accusing their boss of gender discrimination, that's not new. This team has been doing it the whole time since it started in the 80s. Yeah, I think one of the interesting things with this book is the focus isn't just on the big games. The story isn't just recapping the 1999 World Cup or or something like that. You talk a lot about the USA's fight for equality. Talk about... Um, you know, why, why was that sort of the focus that you wanted to make sure you got across in the book? Yeah, I mean, when I think about the story of the U.S. women's national team, we've all watched the games. We all kind of know what happened in those tournaments. And I wanted to take people in the locker rooms and in the boardrooms and take them into things that we didn't really know about, things that, um, you know, otherwise we wouldn't really know about. And For me, I think a lot of that did have to do with what this team put up with in the beginning. We just, you know, we watched the team in 2015. We saw the success they had. We saw the crowds that they get. And we kind of just, I think, maybe assume it was maybe always sort of like that. Whereas actually in the 90s, they were getting $10 a day. They were scraping to get by. They had, you know, multiple jobs that they had to work. And that would have never changed. The team would never be where it is now if those early players hadn't waged these fights, if Mia Hamm and Julie Foudy didn't sit in a conference room and tell the president of U.S. soccer that they were never going to play soccer again if he and the Federation didn't treat them better. I mean, that's pretty courageous and pretty gutsy to do something like that. And those were the stories I wanted to tell, and those are the stories I don't think people knew. You you obviously mentioned a story there. You have so many interviews uh, with different players and, and different people connected to the national team in this book. Are, were there specific anecdotes that, that sort of stood out to you, um, the sort of memorable ones from the book? Yeah, I mean, Mia Hamm and Julie Foudy in the conference room uh, fighting with the president of U.S. soccer is one of my favorites. Um, but there were just a lot of things I didn't know. Like when Kate Markgraf got pregnant, she got kicked off the team. And there was this big back and forth about pregnancy discrimination that I don't think anyone knew about. That was really interesting. When the NWSL was going to launch in 2013, the players actually were going to strike. They voted on it. They talked about it. They were close to doing it. And then they obviously never did. But it was interesting to kind of hear how close they got to that. And then with the soccer um You know, the 2012 semifinal at the Olympics, that was an amazing game. We all remember Alex Morgan scores at the last minute. It was crazy. It, you know, went down in history in the U.S.-Canada rivalry. I've probably watched that game several times. I know everything about that game. 
But it was so interesting talking to Pia Sunhaga, talking to some of the players, and them talking about how John Herdman, the coach of the Canadian team, was, like, taunting the U.S. team, like, going over to their bench and taunting them. And, like, I've seen that game so many times, I never knew that that happened. And multiple players and Pia Sunhaga all brought that up unprompted. It clearly was something that stood out in their minds. So, yeah, I mean, there there are just so many great stories, and that's what I wanted this book to be, stories that fans of the team have never heard before, but they want to hear. Looking ahead sort of to, to the World Cup uh, next month, how do you think the team, the U.S. Women's National Team, this year sort of compares to the team that won the 2015 World Cup? Yeah, so I actually did an article for The Guardian where I was tasked with comparing the teams. And it was an interesting exercise because I thought that I believed the 2019 team was better because I do think just in general, the way women's soccer is going, everyone is getting better all the time. But when I actually went through line by line and compared them, and I actually gave a rating to each part of the field in the end, the 2015 team got a higher score because they had Hope Solo in goal, who was the best goalkeeper in the world at the time. They had a much stronger defense. But then when I look at this 2019 team, how do you improve that attack? I don't think you can. I mean, Tobin Heath, Alex Morgan, Meg Rupino off the bench, Mallory Pugh, Kristen Press. I think the attack is more potent. The defense is significantly weaker. So if the U.S., does repeat it's not going to be like in 2015 where they went I think it was 540 minutes without conceding a goal they're probably going to get in some shootouts so it's going to be really fun for us um maybe a little nerve-wracking for the fans that really want them to win (laughs) in terms of the roster were there any surprises for you you talk about in the defense being worse this time around Were, were there certain surprises that stood out to you when you heard the roster Yes. (laughs) Um, Even though I kind of expected Allie Krieger would make the team because why is Jill Ellis going to call her in and then have her play in the final game before the roster is announced if she has no intention of doing anything with Allie Krieger? So I thought that meant she was on the team. It still was shocking, honestly. Why wasn't she in the team for the past two years? Um, Casey Short not making the team. Also shocking, The left-back depth chart is Crystal Dunn, Crystal Dunn, and Crystal Dunn, basically. I mean, you can put Tierna Davidson in there. Not an ideal situation. Um, And just from a roster construction standpoint, having Jessica McDonald there, do you really need her when you have, you know, Alex Morgan, Carly Lloyd, all the wingers? Um, it, It was surprising. I predicted the... 2015 roster pretty close I got one uh, I thought uh, Rachel Bueller would make it and said Shannon Box did then for the 2016 Olympics got that exactly right I was pretty wrong on this one and I'm, I'm willing to admit that so definitely surprising in terms of going into the World Cup, you mentioned earlier that you know a lot of a lot of teams are getting better. Women's soccer in general is getting better. What are sort of the matchups you're most excited for, and what are sort of your predictions for how this U.S. team is going to do? Yeah, from a U.S. standpoint, a little nerve-wracking because, like you said, the world is getting better. When you look at that draw, if things go the way we expect, like if the results go chalk and you know things happen how we expect them to, 
the U.S. will probably have to play either Germany or France in the quarterfinal, which is an insane quarterfinal matchup. That could be a final. I think France looks very good. They're going to be the host country. You know, one of the questions about them always has been their mentality. They kind of choke on the big stage. They've never made it to a final. Could this be the time that they do? I think it could. They have the talent. They're going to be the hosts. There's going to be a lot of momentum behind them. So U.S. versus France, if that happens, whenever that happens, that is the matchup I want to watch. I have already predicted France will win. I I don't know. It's going to be tough. Um, You know, we'll see how the U.S. does. I'm a little nervous about that defense, but maybe they'll just beat teams five to four, you know? (laughs) (laughs) The uh, for for Thorns fans uh, in particular, obviously, uh, it's a Timbers and Thorns podcast. First, um, what what a, what should Thorns fans be watching for in this World Cup? I, I mean, they obviously have four players on the U.S. Women's National Team and, and players across multiple countries. I mean, what I want to see is Tobin Heath, not Meg, the best players <laughs> in the world, and like do tricks at the World Cup. Like that's kind of what I'm looking for. Yeah, I mean, the Thorns are going to be really important and. Um, it's interesting to think about the right back position, actually, because Kelly O'Hara has had some ongoing ankle injuries. I think that's why Allie Krieger even made it on the roster, is that Jill Ellis is pretty worried about that. If Kelly O'Hara can't start, I think probably Emily Sonnet is the starter. I, I don't know if you kind of just throw Allie Krieger right in after she's been out of the national team for two years. So there's going to be a lot of uh, thorns to watch at the World Cup. Um, and also, it is a Thorns podcast. I did interview Merritt Paulson for my book. There is some Thorns in there, so I won't spoil anything. But, um, yeah, you can check it out. There's some Thorns content in the book. Yeah, it seems like Portland uh, has played at least some role uh, in reading this book in the growth of women's soccer and the growth of the national team. So I think Thorns sure. fans are definitely going to want to check that out. Um, definitely before I let you go I want to ask you where should people buy this book because I think this is a great preview for anyone getting hyped up for the World Cup they should definitely be reading this yeah it's at Powell's Um, I signed some copies I think the ones I signed are gone before I go to France maybe I'll sign some more so if you see a sticker on it that says autographed I went in there and signed it Uh, Barnes Noble um, Amazon if you want all the links and everything you can go to USWNT book.com that obviously stands for u.s women's national team uswntbook.com has all the links and everything awesome well thank you so much for coming on the show caitlin hopefully we can have you on again in the future to to talk some more women's national team Um, but i really appreciate you coming on and for your time thank you for having me Thanks again to Caitlin. Uh, So now we have a little bit of a preview for the World Cup uh, where some thorns will be. But let's talk about the thorns that are not going to France. Uh, We can talk about a couple who are going to France still. Well, we can talk. Yeah, we can talk about a couple about who are going to France. Well, let's talk about the thorns. Let's talk about everything related to the thorns. Okay, everything ever. Whatever we want to talk about. Let's talk about Rachel Van Hollebeek. Do you, want, do you want to start about the players that were named to the World Cup rosters this week, or do you want to uh, go straight into talking about Orlando? Let's talk about Orlando because I feel like yeah. we're going to start talking about World Cup stuff okay. a lot towards the end of the show. So two to so it was a three to one victory in Orlando. Yes. I'm just reading here. You predicted the good old two one. Although we have established that when you pick pick the road team in a two one, I'm not allowed to make fun of you. Yeah, 
even though I'm still doing this. Well, you might have more to make fun of me later if you see my later predictions. Oh my gosh. Um, But you should probably make fun of me a little bit because when you asked me what the lineup was likely to be for this game, I shoved Tyler Lucy's name in there. When we did predictions, I said Tyler Lucy's going to score a goal. Tyler Lucy played, what, 12 minutes in this game? So again, it's me paying, it's me playing favorites. <laughs> and again, me overlooking the obvious thing, because like we said last week, I had forgotten about Mitch Purse. Yeah. And even she didn't start this week and we saw a formation change. But let's get into that. Thorns with a three to one victory over Orlando, second victory of the year in Orlando, second victory of the year, period. Uh let's start just chronologically. The Thorns conceded early, they conceded off of a corner kick, and they conceded in a way that I was kind of like, Oh my gosh. Is this going to be a real game? Because I didn't expect Orlando to score at all. So what did you think in those early moments when it kind of looked like a real game? Yeah, um, I actually got to see it. Unlike, I, I'm pretty sure, we'll get into that later, but I'm pretty sure you <laughs> might not have actually gotten to see the beginning. Yes. Yeah, um, I, it was a little bit concerning. It, I, I felt as if going into this game that the Thorns were clearly going to be the better team. And um, Orlando kind of came out on the front foot and, and took advantage uh, of a set piece. Um, I, I think, you know, the Thorns have conceded early against two weak teams in the last uh, two games. I don't think that's something that they are happy about um, or that you want to see. Um, I, I think what's good in both situations is that they responded. Mm-hmm. Um, and this one in particular, they responded enough to get the win. Yeah. The, was it the 10th minute that Tony Presley scored? I can't remember. Um, she beats Emily Menges near post, gets yeah. to a ball. Pretty basic play. Emily Menges playing her first minutes of the year. It's one of those things where you know that the team has to work on that. Pretty basic execution on a pretty standard play. But we also kind of separate that from the kind of the defense you have to apply from most of the time. Set pieces are another thing. You obviously don't want to concede goals on those, just like you don't want to be given up penalties. Those are a different type of goal, too. This one, it's just not something where I'm going to worry about it too much unless they start conceding more and more yeah, corner kicks. We haven't seen specifically set piece defending being an issue so far. Yeah, and so while... On one hand, that might lead somebody to say, oh, well, then they didn't allow any other open play goals the rest of the game, so it must have been a good defensive performance. It was just kind of like an incomplete defensive performance because I can't even remember, well, I would never remember how many times a team gets the ball into the opposing penalty area, but they were so few during this game for Orlando that they could have just been playing on half the field. I mean, the Thorns just seem to pin them, be winning balls high, be maintaining possession. Um, I mean, Orlando just has so much work to do that I think that's one of the things that I said uh, in something that I wrote this weekend. The Thorns have two victories this year. They're both against what is clearly the worst team in the league. And while I don't think the Thorns are a bad team at all, I also think you should look at that and go, well, we don't really know about the Thorns yet. Yeah. I mean, their most convincing performances have been against the least convincing team. Yeah. I mean, they obviously haven't lost. And um they, that performance against chicago obviously they went toe-to-toe with them mm-hmm. um and chicago is going to be a very good team yeah um I, some would say they already are a very good team. yeah <laughs> well they are and are going to be they're yes. going to be a playoff contender you uh, could say they are currently a very good team <laughs> oh wow. wow yeah that's uh, what we've descended to here on this show yeah <laughs> uh but yeah they the thorns haven't had a ton of challenges so far when you look at their schedule i mean two against orlando and sky and they played sky blue yeah um we really haven't seen them go against the better teams in the league and so that's why part of this part of the schedule where they have washington to play this weekend sky blue after that is yeah. probably less about the results it, than the underlying progress. I was about to say results are always important, but even when you have a two, two draw against sky blue, you want to look at the underlying 
progress. And that's probably what leads us to the rest of this game. We saw the Thorns exert a lot of pressure that eventually led to Dagny Brignard-Stoiter scoring off of a rebound in the first half. Andresinha, the team earned a free kick after, who was it that got pulled down? Ellie Carpenter got pulled down by Rachel Hill. Andresinha made them pay for that. They're up 2-1. In the second half, Caitlin Ford scores off of a great half volley finish fart post. Eventually doesn't put a penalty kick away, but the Thorns really did exert themselves over the final 80 minutes of this game so you've already alluded to it but overall how should we look at that response how positively should we be thinking about that response good teams need to be able to dominate weak teams you need to not be able to play down to their level and i I think the thorn showed that for the majority of this game and i think that's a good sign I, i think the early concessions especially early concession, especially against a weak team, is disappointing. But to be able to respond like that and and clearly show which team was the better team um, is important to see um, and is good. But again, as you talked about earlier, we still need to see how the Thorns are going to perform against better teams. Compared to this time last week, do you feel better, worse, or the same about the Thorns? I think about the same. I don't. I, I think it's good to get the points out of Orlando, and obviously the Thorns had already lost some players. They're going to lose more in a few weeks. Um, I think it's important. They're important points to get, uh, but I don't think the fact that they have two wins against Orlando tells us all that much about this team. Compared to this point last week, do you feel better, worse, or the same about the Thorns' ability to manage the next ten weeks? Huh. Um, yeah, I, I feel about the same. I think all that too, because I don't think, I think when you look at a lot of the players that really stepped up in this game and they're only under senior got the free kick forward scores. I, I mean, two of the goal scorers, uh, aren't going to be here after this will be their final game this weekend. Ellie Carpenter drew the penalty, yeah, uh, drew the, not the penalty kick, but the direct kick. That yeah. So I, I still think there are some questions there that that are, that are going to be answered um, in game six and four uh, that we haven't really seen what this Thorn seems going to look like completely yeah. uh, once those players leave. One thing we did see was a formation change. I was a little bit surprised by that. Uh, you know, they've been playing, Mark Parsons likes to call it a 4-3-3. I think a lot of us think of it as a 4-2-3-1. But they've been playing that not only this year, but through the second half of last year. They went back to the 5-3-2 for this game or the 5-2-1-2 or 5-2-3. Mark Parsons always refers to his formations differently than I do. So I want to make sure that his version gets out there (laughs) so that people know what he calls it. But I think of it as a 5-3-2. So we saw that this week. What did you think about that? Did you think that it was a good move, bad move? Or again, are we just kind of... I think what we're getting at here is this Orlando game was kind of a... Not a nothing game, but it just... This is what was supposed to happen. Yeah. this game like we can't take anything positive or negative from it it was supposed to happen orlando is such a weird team right now that there's not a lot to learn from this game yeah i mean i don't think the thorns are set in information and i think we'll find out what formation they're going to play completely during this world cup period and it might look very different than what they look like when they have all their players here mm-hmm. um so i'm not shocked to see a formation change maybe maybe a little bit surprised at this point because i you could see with the players they had them keeping the same formation yeah um but I, I, I think given that the roster is going to change so much, I, I think a formation and system change was something that was probably always coming, or at least to some degree, there was going to be mm. tweaks uh, to what they were doing. It's very interesting. I think it maybe it shines a little bit of light on the two players that were released last week. So they, they sacrificed some forward depth yeah. last week. 
you look at the World Cup roster, they're still going to lose Ellie Carpenter, but they have a decent replacement there if they want to put Midge Purse there. You still have in defense, if they play the three central defenders that they played this week, Gabby Seiler, Catherine Reynolds, Emily Menges, Klingenberg is on the left-hand side. Those players will all be there. You can think of going to an extra defender as building from strength, yeah. especially the way we saw Gabby Seiler jump into midfield um, this weekend, too, when the team was in possession and provide not just a central defender's role, more of a holding midfielder's role. And I think that's why I was surprised last week when I kind of saw that they were playing around with this in training, just like, wow, this seems really weird because you've got people like Tyler Lucy on the bench that you can still use. Mitch, Mitch Purse is a forward. But when you look at the roster, it does play to strengths a little bit. So I do wonder if we're going to see that going forward. I also wonder if we're going to see senseless 30-minute weather delays going forward. What, <laughs> I, I, senseless is strong because lightning is lightning. But they had, what, 90 seconds left yeah. of that game? And what did you think of that? I was I was pissed because yeah. that meant I couldn't just finish my work and go out. I mean, I, it's a purely selfish piss. I mean, I think Mark Parsons, I mean, I don't know his emotions, but I think the this shot they showed of him, I, I think he didn't look that happy either. <laughs> um, I, I think the biggest thing is that when you have a weather delay, it always, it, players have to re-warm up. They it sort of... You, you put your players in a position where they might be more susceptible to injury because they're, they're not really going through the regular routine. They've their body's sort of winding down after playing 90 minutes and suddenly you're telling them to get back up and start running again. That's my biggest concern is something like that could happen over a game that was over. Right. Um, at the same time, I, unless Orlando was willing to say, yeah, it's fine, which they should have been willing to say, yeah, it's fine. Um, if they were given that option, I don't know if they were, but, um, it, it's hard to to call to call a game if one team says, "Yeah, we have more time and we think we can come back," yeah, or something like that. I, I think it was a tough spot. I, it was very annoying, and I, I think if it had led to an injury, there would be a lot more talk about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it's hard to call a game unless if, if, unless one team totally wants to concede that they've lost it. Even then, it's it's a decision that has to be made at the league level. Yeah. So if the league says you play, you play, and clearly that's what happened. I guess yeah. for me. Some people have brought this up online, and I hate trusting online because most of us lie online, and that's what <laughs> online is for. But the idea that something changed in the weather situation between the 80th minute and the 92nd minute. Yeah. From what everybody is saying, the situation was dangerous in the 80th minute, too. So if you're willing to play through those 12 minutes, you're not willing to pay for, play through an extra 90 seconds? Yeah. It sounds like the game probably should have been paused earlier if this was like a legitimate thing. But who knows? Uh, you, I think in talking about it, I almost want to give the refs the benefit of the doubt because they're, they're trying to do the right thing. And you yeah. hate coming down on people when they're trying to do the right thing, especially when it comes to people's health. But boy, I was really mad for that half hour. Yeah. Really mad. <laughs> um, another interesting snafu. Yeah. Another snafu that happened in the earlier game is that apparently somebody in the Yahoo technician's truck spilled a drink on a drive <laughs> or something like that. And we got... Uh, an expressionist painting for the first 11 minutes of this game where just buffering and streaming and basically we were just seeing pixelated pictures off and on yeah. for the first 11 minutes. Well, not not in Canada. Not in Canada. Not, not yeah. those of us who hadn't flown back. The in fairness. was perfect. In fairness, very early in the game, somebody told me if I was just willing to activate, activate my VPN, get a foreign IP, it would be fine. And I said to myself, nah, I got tweets to get off. I got tweets to get off here. I'm not going. I'm not going to this. 
And like you said, uh, I didn't get to watch the corner kick a goal that Orlando scored. I didn't get to watch that live. I had to wait for a replay. And thankfully, they had one at like the 13-minute mark or something like that. But I thought that was fun. I mean, I, I kind of wish you could have shared in that moment, Jamie. No, no I, I mean, obviously, you've been covering the NWSL forever. But I, going back to 2013, 2014, I, I'm so tired of bad <laughs> NWSL streams. For a professional league, it, that should be far in the past at this point. And it felt like it was with the Lifetime um, deal that, that finally uh, Lifetime and um, who were they? Go 90, I think, overall. I had, didn't see any don't remember any streaming issues there. Um, but to see it come back is, is so aggravating. I, I, <laughs> I hope that this is a one-off for Yahoo because Yahoo shouldn't be, yeah. is not a streaming platform that should be having these mistakes. I just hope it's a one-off because I do not want to go back to the days of 2014 where you turn on the game and wonder if you're actually going to watch a game of soccer. Eh, we're five weeks into the season. This is the first time it's happened. Yeah, I'm, I'm it, willing to believe it's a one-off. I'm, I'm willing to believe it's a one-off too, but it is... It doesn't make me any happier. <laughs> it makes me happy. I'm actually mad that I was mad at the time because there are so few times in our lives, Jamie, that something different happens. Oh, gosh. Different and beautiful. <laughs> I Sure. Okay. I mean, this is, this is like a ca- Southern California sunset. Purple, hazy, and you know it's caused by pollution. You know it's the worst things in the world that are contributing to this beautiful thing. And so trying to take some joy in it, you almost feel guilty because the world shouldn't be this way. But I think at some point we just have to accept the world we're given, Jamie. So the Thorns will play Washington on Saturday uh, at 4 p.m. <laughs> Let's talk about that. Let's talk about it. Um, so the three Australians uh, were named to the World Cup, the Australia World Cup roster, I believe, yeah, uh, yep. Monday. Um, Ellie Carpenter, Haley Rosso, and Caleb Ford, they will still be there. Andre Senior will still be there. And then they will leave uh, for the World Cup following this game. So one final chance to see uh, some Thorns World Cup players with the Thorns uh, before the World Cup. Um, Washington, 2-1-1, one at home so far. I don't nec- I'm not necessarily going to – that's a pretty decent record. I'm not necessarily going to say mm-hmm. that this is a really great team. But what do, what do you think? What do you expect from this game? I think they're an improved team. Yeah. Um, last year, for most of the year, even though Sky Blue was the focus because they hadn't won a game yet and didn't win until the last game of the season, Sky Blue was a better team than Washington. This year, it seems like there is a new focus, a new purpose. I think part of what made last year so shocking is they had decent talent. Um, they have two players, Rose Lavelle and Mallory Pugh, who have departed for the World Cup. They have two more players, Amy Harrison and Chloe Lagarza, who will go with the Australians. They have players on this team. Actually, uh, Shana Williams will too for the Jamaican national team. So sorry about that. I uh, didn't mean to exclude her. But they have talent on this team. They have good players that aren't going to be going to the World Cup too. And I expect this to be a tough game. I think that you know a lot of people like to think that Sky Blue isn't good, but when you look at their actual players, they're decent. I think it's the same thing where Washington's going to have decent players. And if the Thorns don't play one of their better yeah. games, they can lose this one. They can be drawn in this one. So I think it's going to be an interesting game. I think I think one of the interesting things is sort of the, the challenge, as you mentioned. I, Orlando, um, the Thorns played playing Orlando, playing Sky Blue. Obviously, the Thorns have struggled against Sky Blue, as we've seen, but... Other than Chicago, I mean, they just haven't had a, we We haven't seen them challenged against a different team so far. I, I think this will be a better benchmark to sort of see where the Thorns are at. Yeah. Um, obviously, as we keep saying, the players will change in the week after. But I, I do think it'll be a little bit of a better benchmark, um, as Chicago was as well. 
And the thing I keep going back and forth with here is the whole starting with six games on the road. In MLS, we've already said it. Hey, 10 points for the Timbers. It could be better, but they've avoided a worst-case scenario here. People should be at least content with this. They they aren't going to be so far behind the pack when the road games, when the home games start coming. So maybe logically we should think the same thing about the Thorns, that, hey, as long as they do okay in these games, they've got the home games make, made up. But I believe last year they were 6-3-3 three and three at home and 6-3-3 three and three on the road. Yeah. I mean, but last year was a bit of an anomaly, but yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, the early form at home was not yeah, good. They, I mean, yeah, the reason, I mean, you can't, maybe you can't be as sure about the Thorns home form because of last year, but if you look at every, any mm-hmm. under year, uh, not any other year, but uh, the other years under Mark Parsons, what, what did they lose? I think like two games at home the, mm. in the other years combined. Yeah, that sounds about right. Like lose two and they've only drew like three or four. So yeah, they they were dominant at home. And, and so which which home form are we going to see this year? I don't know yet. Um, mm-hmm. And if you're assuming it's going to look like last year, then suddenly these road games get uh, become a lot more important. Yeah. But in terms of just a general expectation for what the team has on, does on the road, look, if they say they draw their next two games, come back home with 10 points in six games, zero losses, is that good? I mean, I think it's pretty good. Yeah, I think so too. Like, say they win one and lose one. I mean, nobody's going to want to lose to Washington or Sky Blue. But at that point, they'll return home with 11 points in six games. Pretty good, right? Yeah, I mean, I think the expectations for the Thorns are always going to be at a different level than they are for the Timbers. Not Mm -hmm. that the Timbers don't have high expectations, but the Thorns are the flagship franchise of the NWSL. And they are expected to win and be contenders to to win the championship every single year yeah um so i i think by by just because of that we're going to think of them differently when we're talking about road games home games the expectations always going to i think be a little bit higher for them Mm -hmm. no that's fair enough and i think these next two games in neither game are the thorns going to go into this these games with less talent than their opponents i mean games against chicago north carolina those games you can understand any result in those games. Seattle, Seattle's got a talented team, Utah too. Um, but the Thorns, there are really only two teams in this league where you would say the Thorns clearly don't have better talent with them, and that's Chicago and North Carolina. And they're not playing Chicago or North Carolina uh, before, well, before June 2nd, when Chicago will be at Providence Park. Uh, let's go to a question from Emma. Do you think North Carolina's recent matches have shown any weaknesses the Thorns can target or ways in which they can be as dominant as Chicago versus North Carolina? It, Chicago is as versus North Carolina. So for people who don't know, uh, North Carolina is not at the top of the standings right now. Yeah. Houston is. Houston is with five points through 10 games. And then there's a nice little cluster behind them. Utah has nine points. They're right behind them. And then three teams tied on eight points, the three teams that we always talk about, Chicago, North Carolina, and Portland. Of note is that Portland has played one fewer game than Chicago and North Carolina. So while North Carolina has the best goal difference in the league, positive six, they've only got eight points through five games, a very un-North Carolina-like, merely very good record. So to Emma's question, is there anything from North Carolina's quote, 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 slow start that we can use to inform how the Thorns match up with them? I, I, I don't know. I, Chicago's always played well against North Carolina, and I think that's just somewhat of a personnel matchup. Um, and, and obviously they just beat North Carolina last week. Uh, and I, I think, like the Thorns, North Carolina's losing players as well. Uh, so it's really difficult when all these teams are going to basically have a different roster from now until sometime in July uh, 
to, to read too much into it, but may, maybe you have some ideas. No, I think that you kind of hinted at something that I think remains true. This is a matchup issue. It's not a talent issue. It's more of a style issue. And we saw that last year where Portland, Portland has Chicago's number. They don't have North Carolina's number. Chicago does very well against North Carolina. What is that about? The Thorns have evolved to a point where their preferred way of playing matches up poorly against North Carolina. So it's, a, it's about developing another trick. But more than that, too, I think it's about just actually belief a little bit, too. Like They have to believe that the version of North Carolina they saw last year is beatable. Because yeah. except for the first game of the season where North Carolina drastically outshot, outshot Portland in a one nothing win, Portland didn't come close. So for me, when I, to answer Emma's questions directly, North Carolina is playing the same way with different personnel, just as every team has different personnel. But they're still at their core the same team with the same character. And when they match up with the Thorns, they're going to be the same problem. The Thorns have to develop a solution for that. And Emma, I just don't know. I don't know what that solution is. Yeah. Um, so just in case people missed it, the Thorns are going to be missing nine players for the World Cup. Five players are already gone. The four U.S. internationals, Adriana French, Emily Sonnet, Tobin Heath, and Lindsey Horan. And then the Canadian international, the captain of the team, Christine Sinclair, they're already gone. And then the coming weeks, like Jamie said, Haley Rosso, Caitlin Ford, Ellie Carpenter, and Andrew Senior will be going also. So what do we think? What do we think about now that the absences are coming? You know, I always kind of like made jokes every time you brought this up, but we're here now. Do you think the Thorns are in a good position to manage these next 10 weeks? I think they have enough talent to manage the next 10 weeks. I think the defense has to be a little bit better than it's been. Mm. Um, and and that the defense isn't changing. I mean, at this point, it, I guess they'll lose Carpenter. It's not changing substantially. Yeah. Um, I, I, she's I played well, but I, I think like we talked about earlier, there is... They have with Mitch Purse, they have sort of an option to a pretty clear option to replace that. And they have some options that they want to change formation. I think defensively, other uh, teams can be a lot closer to intact um, in, in terms of the attack. I think there's some question marks on how mm-hmm. this team's going to do. But I, I think when you look across the league, I think they certainly have the talent to keep up. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. And, you know, it's just a matter of finding something that works during that time period. So we'll see if that happens. All right, Jamie, your favorite part of this show, the part of the show that you never get wrong. The history of the show has shown that you are excellent at predictions. So, Jamie, what is your prediction for the Timbers Wednesday game at BBVA Compass Stadium in Houston? I'm going to predict a 2-1 loss. Oh, sorry. I was just about to throw the microphone at you. Yeah, that would be very loud for our listeners. Uh, I'm going to give the Timbers the benefit of the doubt that they're going to put in a decent performance in this one, but this is tough. Yeah, This is a real tough game for them. Yeah, I completely agree. I think that my regard for Houston came out on this show when we were talking about Houston. I think they're a very good team. And, you know, I keep hanging my hat on, you know, beginning of the season. I, I predicted Houston would be one of the surprise teams, even though I don't think it's that surprising that they're good. Maybe it's a little bit surprising that they're this good so far. That schedule's got to even out. As for my prediction, I am going with a Jeremy Abobasi goal, but not just any goal, Jamie. Let's add some flavor to it if you can call set pieces flavorful. But, <laughs> but you know, a different bar here. I say a Jeremy Abobasi set piece goal is going to happen on Wednesday night. What, what if he takes a set piece and scores? How crazy would that be? Oh, yeah. Well, we saw Bill line up, line up yeah, with the ball. Know, that know. was great. Things, things can happen. I know. <laughs> was it? Uh, I was watching the TSN broadcast through ESPN+. Plus. 
And they were just amazed that Bill Tuiloma yeah. was was lining it up, which I think most people that listen to the show have heard that you know Bill Tuiloma was a good ball striker and everything like that. We talked about it a lot last year when he went into the lineup, his ability to play uh, diagonals. But it was still kind of cool to yeah, see somebody just think, new. Yeah, it was surprising. I mean, I think the I, I would assume the only reason it happened was because Larry had just gone just completely been taken out and landed just on his back mm. uh, real hard oh, just yeah. a minute before. Yeah, he probably just. Needed a breath is is my assumption. Maybe not. Maybe they just want to build take one. Um, but I, I it was it was surprising, but interesting to see. All right. Well, let's move on to the second game of the week, the Portland Soccer Week. Thorns at Washington, former stomping grounds for Mark Parsons. Jamie, two to one spirit he- win here. Correct. Uh, I'm gonna go the opposite way. What? I'm gonna go two one Thorns win. Two one. Um, I'm gonna keep two one. All two one this week. The most common. Good old Jamie. Is it, is two it, one goal. Is it actually the most common score in soccer? It feels like it is. I wonder. I don't know if someone's done analysis. It feels like it's the most common score. Yeah. But I'm gonna go with a two one win. I think the Thorns are better than Washington. Um, let's see if they can do it. Feels like we could just Google it right now, but we're pretty late into this one. <laughs> no, it's, we're gonna just make assumptions. It's fine, yeah. listener. This is how much we care about you. We could take the whole eight seconds to find out right now. No, so we're gonna keep talking. We're gonna keep talking. We're gonna keep talking for nine seconds. Um, I'm going with a Haley Russell goal. No reason to believe that, other than the fact that she made her 2019 debut in Orlando, played for 45 minutes, looked good. Uh, she looks healthy, and just the sim- not the symmetry, but the the narrative of her scoring against her former team before she goes off to her second world cup. Uh, I'm going to go with that one. Great. Um, <laughs> you heard, you heard it here first. Jamie says that prediction's great. I mean, I, it would be really, it would be really great to see Rasa score a goal, uh, especially after all she's been through. So um, maybe I should have said that with more emphasis. No, <laughs> I, I, it would be really cool to see her get that send off before going to the world cup. We'll see if it happens. I think that leaves us just with the fantasy update. Uh, yes. So our new, our new highly detailed fantasy segment yeah, that we're doing now. Yeah. Mark uh, has been giving us some really good info about fantasy. Uh, <laughs> all these things we don't know about. Uh, but yeah, uh, to, to give the standings third place, uh, Geostorm FC. That's Aaron uh, still with a 10-0-0 record and a total points of 942. Uh, second place is Wook score more goals. That's Robert uh, with another perfect record, but 1,028 points. And Crowder's Mug Club is now in first. That's Xavier uh, 10-0-0, and ha- he has 1,038 points. So you mentioned Mark, who is the person that gives us these updates on a weekly basis, and I love these updates that he gives us. Gives us a screenshot from the MLS website, and one of the things you can see is the record. You mentioned that's three, the three teams at the top, perfect record through 10 rounds. It's a head-to-head league. But the thing that I think is most important is the points against column, because it kind of shows you the quality of the teams that you're going against. Like, Fantasy doesn't have defense where you can, oh, this is a good matchup against this team. I'm going to be able to prevent points. You can't prevent points from the other team. They're going to score the points against you. But what you can see through the points against column is which teams have had the toughest schedules, either by opponent or just by luck that those opponents have had. So, for example, Geostorm FC, the team that's in third place, only 508 points against. That's the lowest total in this whole top seven that Mark has clipped for us. So they've had a pretty easy schedule at this point. Second place, Wooks. 
they've had 964 points scored against, the highest of the top four teams in this league. So their 10-0 and and record has been accomplished against a little bit more opposition or a little bit more bad luck against them. So I think that's really interesting. We'll see how this transpires. But to this point, the three teams that have maintained perfect records through 10 rounds are the three teams that are at the top of the table. That's how it works. <laughs> Yeah, thank you again to Mark, uh, as always, for the detailed fantasy update, and we'll keep that going uh, next week. Um, But I think that's all for this week in terms of Timbers and Thorns talk. Uh, You can find us every week on Oregon Live, uh, Timbers.com, and Stumptown Footy, or you can subscribe on iTunes and Stitcher. And until next week, take care.